You can do a lot of things while you're still asleep. You can climb a 140-foot-tall crane while you're sleepwalking. You can reorganize your entire refrigerator, making room for an 80-pound bag of dog food while you're sleepwalking. People have driven across their cities without getting in accidents and come back home while asleep. You can murder your mother-in-law with a tire iron while sleepwalking. You can order $2,900 worth of products from anthropology.com while you're sleeping, wake up the next day, report your credit card stolen until the credit card company informs you it was purchased on your laptop at three in the morning. You can email Evites to your friends, as one 44-year-old woman did that said, come tomorrow and sort this hellhole out. Dinner and drinks, 4 p.m., bring wine and caviar only. (laughs) You can jump out of a four-story building and sleep through the impact. You can go from a size 10 waistline to a size 16 waistline and have no idea over the course of the months why your weight is so significantly increasing until, as Kate Archibald, a college freshman, did, wake up one night covered in chocolate wrappers and realize that you binge eat in your sleep. You can do a lot of things while you're sleeping. These were intricate things. They're complicated things like starting a car, driving across town and not getting in a wreck. They're complicated things, but you're asleep the whole time. So you're kind of there, but kind of not. You're kind of engaged, kind of conscious, but not really. And you're still missing a lot of what's going on. This is what is going on in Jonah. It's the only explanation I have for how chapter 4 happens. For two whole chapters in the middle of this book, the entire centerpiece of this book, 50% of the middle, we think Jonah, who had been asleep to God, dead to God, was finally waking up. You might have been cheering him on. He finally repents in chapter two. He's for the first time after days and days and days, but he's turning around. He's finally praying again. He's owning responsibility for what he did. And then uh, the second time the word of the Lord comes to Jonah and says, go to Nineveh, that great city and preach. He goes two or three week journey, 700 miles. Every foot in front of the other was a decision to walk with his God and to go. And he does more or less what God told him. You wouldn't be crazy if you were expecting for the plane to softly land, for this, for this narrative, which was a biography of a man's life. Don't forget. You wouldn't be crazy if you thought that this was coming in for a tidy landing. You would be hard-pressed to find any other prophet in all of Israel's history who had a more successful and spiritually fruitful ministry than Jonah. Jonah had the results in ministry that every prophet dreamed of. Jeremiah wanted them. Nobody repented when Jeremiah called him to repent. Isaiah wanted these results. Not many people listened to Isaiah and responded to him. Go through the whole list of prophets. People would be salivating for an entire city to say, we're wrong. God is right. And we want him. These were the results, like if, if, if Jonah was preaching in Nineveh and this happened, this just, you never would have believed it. 
It'd be someone preaching in Las Vegas and all of the residents of Las Vegas march down to the strip and they're closing the casinos and they're giving all of this, you know, greedily hoarded money out to all of the people living on the streets. It'd be as if all the bankers are filing down out of the skyscrapers in lower Manhattan and they're repenting of greed and they're tearing out that bull statue in front of Wall Street. That represents all that greed. This is, this is the kind of ministry results when, when churches in San Francisco have lines out the door into the streets. There are not enough chairs in the building. This is the kind of repentance in New Orleans when the Mardi Gras parade is canceled because of lack of attendance. There's just not enough people coming to make it worth the cost. This is the kind of repentance where Amazon runs out of Bibles and publishers are calling employees back to work 24-7 to meet the demand. An entire city from the top to the cattle that wants God, that acknowledges we have been wrong. We have denied him, ignored him, toyed around with him, played around with him, but he is real and he is good and we need him and we want him. This is, what, this is how the previous encounter ended with Jonah, chapter 3, verse 7. And if you're in Jonah's shoes, you're thinking, praise God. I read in the Psalms, in that day, the nations will come and the nations, not Israel, the nations will say, God has done great things. And he says, hallelujah. And those are all things that Jonah never said. Because this is what Jonah says. Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was back at my home country? This is why I ran and fled to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. I knew you would relent from disaster. Therefore, now, oh, Lord, please take my life from me. It's better that I die than live like this. And you're like. I'm sorry, Jonah. It sounded like you just said you're angry that the whole city just repented and listened to your preaching. How is this curveball possible? How is he not excited? The only explanation I have is spiritual sleepwalking. It's amazing how much you can do while spiritually sleepwalking. So many complicated things. So many things that people would watch us doing, so many things that we would watch ourselves doing and mistake ourselves for fully awake, fully alert, all there. But just like all those sleepwalking stories I shared with you earlier, spiritually, sometimes we're not fully here. We're not fully awake. We're at some, some state of grogginess, waking up, only half aware of our surroundings, half aware of our circumstances, it maybe at best, and still appear to be fully awake. That's what I think is going on here with Jonah. I think he's awake, but I don't think he's all the way awake. I think he's still sleepwalking. Spiritually waking up, you can call it sanctification. A word the Bible uses is process of sons and daughters of the living God who've been made alive or Christians being made practically more holy. God teaching you how to love your neighbor, love your campus. 
him patiently walking with you as you learn how to love him is a slow and long process. Sanctification is like a 3D printer. Have you seen how 3D printers work? It's this little like jet head that sprays like polymer or plastic on something. I don't even know what it is. And it, it, it's like a thousand passes. And every time it goes past it, it sprays a little bit more on there. As God sanctifies you and makes you practically more holy and more like Jesus through the course of your ordinary life, grace passes by you a thousand times and sprays a little bit more, a little bit more life on you, a little bit more love on you, a little bit more sobriety. It wakes you up a little bit by little bit. And repentance is like a plow. I know most of you are not farmers, but maybe you grew up in the boondock somewhere and a grandfather Your mom, your dad was a gardener. They plowed the ground. You can't go deep with a plow. You have to go shallow multiple times, right? You got to go maybe six inches or a foot deep, and then you got to go back over the same ground and back over the same ground to dig down because the ground is so hard, the plow can't cut through it. Repentance is like a plow. It's not a one-time event. It's a repetitive lifestyle of recognizing I'm sleepwalking again. I'm only half awake to this God and his glory and his his goodness and his gospel and what he's doing in the world. I'm only half awake to what God's doing at UGA or UNG or Athens Tech. I'm only half present in my relationships. I'm groggy. I'm half asleep. Tim Keller says, uh, we'll pull it up here, understanding God's grace and being changed by God's grace is uh, always requires a long journey with successive stages. It cannot happen in a single cathartic or catastrophic experience. Here's the crazy part about Jonah. The man was swallowed by a sea creature and he remained there sustained by God for three days at the bottom of the ocean. You would think that event would have an impactful change on your life. You would think coming to within an inch of your life, a near death experience as you're thrown off into 60 foot swells. In the middle of a hurricane, you would think that would have a transformative impact on your life. You would think hearing audibly the voice of God with your own ears would have a transformative impact on your life. And not really, not really, not really. (laughs) Because how does chapter four happen? And I mean, come on, Jonah, those three things happen in the same week. How long does change take? That's the question we said we wanted to ask, or this passage asks you, how long does your change, your transformation take? Is this long, slow process? Sinclair Ferguson, in his commentary on Jonah, quotes an anonymous author. We don't know who said this, but um, we'll pull this one up too. The last enemy to be destroyed in believer, in the believer is self. It dies hard. It'll make any concession if only it's allowed to live. Self will permit the believer to do anything, give anything, sacrifice anything, suffer anything. It'll let you go anywhere, take any liberties, bear any crosses, afflict soul and body to any degree, anything if only it can live. It'll consent to live in a in the slums or in a faraway heathendom. If only its life can be spared. That is why sanctification, that's why this process of God changing you. 
He's given you a new heart, but now he is warming your heart with his heart. Now he's making your heart love what his heart loves. That process takes your lifetime. This is the reason why. Self is so stubborn. It holds on to anything you will give it, anything we will give it, anything we will yield to it or allow it. And it compromises. You do whatever you want. Go on that mission trip. Go to RUF. Listen to that. Start reading your Bible. That's fine. That's fine. That's fine. I got no problem with that. Just let me live. Don't execute me. Don't take my life. Just don't feed me as much. This is why this takes a lifetime is because the self, our love of self is so deeply entrenched. What's amazing about this is this is true of Jonah, I think. I think the evidence is all over the book and all over this chapter. But what's amazing about this is how God interacts with Jonah after his latest just unbelievably spectacular whiff. How does God approach him and what does he do? It's, it's again, it's a curveball. You would expect God by this point. I mean, we're on like try number three or four or five in a major way, in a dramatic way. And Jonah whiffs again. And this time he's calling God evil. Chapter four, verse one, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. Your Bible should probably have a little footnote there of what that means. It was an evil in my eyes, what God did. God is wicked. What he did to these Ninevites who deserved death, who deserved judgment, vengeance. How does God approach him again? My heart would expect God to take his thumb and smush Jonah like a gnat and teach Israel, don't do this. I love the nations, Israel. I have, my grace is not for the bounds of Israel. It's for the bounds of the world and everyone in it. Learn your lesson. But God comes to Jonah patiently and rather tenderly. He, in a sense, has a therapist hat on. He comes to Jonah after Jonah's little temper tantrum, so melodramatic. I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's an acting experience that my three-year-old daughter could match. Just melting down, take my life, Lord. It's not worth living anymore because of your mercy to the Ninevites. And God comes and he says, probably first, Jonah, are you done? That part was left out. And he says, and he says, Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? Is it right for you to be angry about this? It's a very curious question. It's not just surprising that God comes to him patiently and open-handedly willing to engage. But it's also interesting what God wants to talk about, because in that moment, what God wants to talk about, it's not, how can you do this? How can you say this? Are you kidding me? A fish. I spared your life. I pursued you. I gave you a second chance to go to Nineveh. Everyone would cut off their leg to get these ministry results. He doesn't say that. He wants to talk about Jonah's anger in particular. Of all the stuff, anger is what he wants to talk about. Is it right for you to be angry? This is significant. Here's why. Anger, your anger, my anger rises up when what we most love is under threat. Anger, you can trace anger directly back to what you most love and think you got to have. 
Anger is the response of the heart when you think you're not going to get what you most love and just got to have. Or when I think that's, that's in threat. So is anxiety. Anger and anxiety are really tied to the same thing. What I have to have to survive, what, what makes life worth living, I will fear the loss of anxiety. And I will rage and lash out and curse if any of you get in between me and what I need, me and what I love, me and what I got to have. Right? Now, sometimes anger is appropriate, right? We've talked about this a few weeks ago about God's anger. God is an angry God. And praise him for that, right? He sees injustice and he's angry about it because injustice is against all that he's for. It warps and vandalizes his world. So, of course, he's angry about that. It's destroying what he loves. But what does Jonah love? What does Jonah prefer is our question. It's our second question. What does he love? What does Jonah prefer? And is it what God prefers? Well, Jonah is angry because of it. Chapter four, verse one. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, I'm angry. And the Lord says, are you doing well? Are you right to be angry? What is the it? That second word of chapter four. What is the it? But it displeased Jonah. What could have set him off so much? The it is the Ninevites repentance and God relenting from disaster. They repented. God relented. Jonah is pissed because of that. That's the it that he is uh, responding to. That's what he is angry about. And that's what, what he loves the most is exposed in this through his anger. We're going to get to it. So hang with me. What did Jonah love the most? And how do we know? We know from verse three, his melodramatic meltdown. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me for it's better to live better for me to die than to live. That's how we know that Jonah uh, was in love with something other than God, because Jonah said life isn't worth living if I don't have that. This is not Psalm 73. Life is not living if I don't have you. You are my portion. Though my flesh may fail and my heart may fail, you, O Lord, are my portion forever. Saying, if I, ha- if I don't have you, life is not worth living. Jonah says, if I don't have that, life is not worth living. It's not worth going on. I could never imagine a good future without that. This is a little bit abstract. Let's bring this into our world a little bit. Here's how this plays out in the Christian life. If some priority or preference that you have makes you willing to write off the spiritual welfare of an entire group of people, especially if they're different than you, that is your greatest love. Whatever that preference or whatever that priority is that makes you willing to just wash your hands and just spend no thought, care nothing in your heart, pray nothing for a whole group of people and their spiritual well-being, their spiritual reconciliation to God, that for you is your greatest love. That's what you will not want to live life without. Textbook idolatry, as the Bible calls it. Here's a few examples, and I'll give you a case study. Imagine if RUF decides, we've had a great 20-year run here in Redeemer, but this isn't UGA's campus, and the only reason RUF is here is for UGA. We say, thank you, God, for an incredibly fruitful 20 years where Do you know tens of thousands of people have crossed through this room in the past 20 years? What if we said, 
But you know what? I don't see many random people walking by while we're singing who hear the music and come in the doors. And I bet a lot of you have invited friends and it's been hard because they're like, wait, what? Downtown? I got to drive? Redeemer? It's a church? What if we said to reach the campus that God has called us to reach, we're going to start meeting on campus? What if we said that? What if that decision happened in a couple of years or next year whenever? Like, what if this happened? Well, let me start telling you how many people would be inconvenienced. Worship team and large group team, which are here every week setting up, would now have to lug all that equipment to some room on campus. You think sound checks now are bothersome? Wait till it's resetting up an entire sound system every week, doing sound check. Musicians lugging all their stuff over there. You having to find parking that's not three feet outside the wall. You might lose a sense of sentimentality. This is an old tire warehouse. It's kind of cool. It's got a lot of warmth and feeling to it, right? There's brick, exposed ceilings. It's an Athenian's dream. (laughs) So what if this happens? What if you lost the sense of being on your home turf when you come here to hear these messages, to sing these songs, to see your friends? If that change happened, how would you respond? Would you prefer and prioritize comfort and the way things have been done? Or would you prefer and prioritize the amazing God you know now being known by your roommates or by your classmates? Would you prefer and prioritize tradition and 20 years of rich memories in this room? Or maybe would you prioritize and prefer UGA encountering a God they thought was dead but is actually alive and brings dead people to life? Would you prioritize and prefer logistical convenience? Or would you prioritize and prefer shouldering the burden and the disruption that real love always shoulders? Is it a little bit easier to relate to Jonah now? I sat on your chair as a student. I sat on your chair as an intern here. And now as a campus minister, I love these things too. I love status quo. I love next week being just like this week. Are you like me? Would that be hard for you to give all that away for the sake of other people that you don't even know? For the sake of them experiencing the grace, the impossible hurdles that have been overcome by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in your life? Would you do that? Jonah said no. Jonah said, I'm not interested. This place, it just means so much to me. For Jonah, it wasn't a room. For Jonah, it was national security. It was If the Ninevites, if God does not wipe these people off the map, they're going to invade Israel. They were always trying to invade Israel. This was a terrorist state. Jonah was worried about the the long-term viability of his country and the people in it, Israel. That's what he was worried about. That's what Jonah had prioritized and preferred, and it's not what God prioritized and preferred. And that's the loggerheads that Jonah comes to with God as they begin to butt heads. Here's an interesting thing. Uh, By the way, that is how great sounding things like go preach to the Ninevites and they're all going to repent, turn into horrible sounding things in Jonah's estimation. How could we ever prefer and prioritize something over God himself? Well, here's how. Do you want to know how, why it's so easy to replace God? Idolatry, the stuff of preferring and prioritizing things God made and putting him above the maker, the giver, life himself. 
Here's how that happens. Idolatry always warps and edits who you think God is. God is transcendent. He is infinite. There is no Wikipedia entry about him because he is transcendent and imminent, Ima- or infinite. Imagine he was, though. Idolatry goes in and selectively edits out need-to-know information about what your God is like. Who made you? Who talks to you tonight through his word? Who pursues you? Who chases after you? Idolatry always edits that. Something crazy is going on in this passage. Jonah literally quotes God. He's quoting something when he says, uh, when he's having his first hissy fit. Ezekiel 34 verses 6 and 7 is what he is quoting. And just like Eve did in the garden, he is editing, selectively editing things out of God's character, reputation, grace. This is what Jonah edits out. Something is conspicuously missing. I'm going to read you one. I'm going to read you how Jonah misquotes it. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. This is when God reveals his glory to Moses. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and the gracious, and, and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and the fourth generation. That is what God revealed to Moses. Here's what Jonah remembered from that. For I knew, O Lord, that you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Full stop. What's missing? See what's missing? Half of who God revealed himself to be. A God who is just. A God who does take names. A God who does notice sin. A God who will not let any of it slide through the cracks, but will demand payment for all of it. Jonah conveniently forgets that. Somehow his idolatry, his his love of his own ideas, his love of his own plans, his own way, has, surprise, edited key characteristics and attributes of this God. And now Jonah thinks God is a patsy. He's a liberal. He's a softie. He doesn't punish people who have done wrong. He just lets it slide. He's unjust. He's wicked. Jonah literally says God did evil. In verse 1, he edits and warps God's character. That's how it's so easy to live him, to, to leave this God. Jonah can't hold together two key things about God. He was asleep to this. He was sleepwalking through this tension that God is serious about sin and he's also serious about saving sinners. Jonah had lost sight of something he should have known. It was present in the Old Testament. He lost sight of the cross where these two things come together. Where Jesus on the cross, God shows, and for him, lambs and bulls being sacrificed at the temple, God's justice meeting God's mercy and the sinner walks away free. And the sin is punished. It's accounted for. Jonah lost sight of that. And so Jonah is just like you and me. Often he is not, he does not in fact love what God loves, but he loves what he loves. And he angrily blames God for not being on board with what he loves and what he prefers. And so he is pissed. How does God change us? It's kind of the last thought or thoughts that we end on in this series and in this passage. How does God change us? 
the way that God revives Jonah's apathy and fixes it and, and begins to pull Jonah back towards himself is approaching him in patience and in love. But here's, here's really how. Jonah, or God repairs our apathy by showing us his concern. Where we have a, just a complete, utter lack of care for other people and their condition, God warms your heart by repeatedly demonstrating through the scriptures, through his church, his heart for those people. And in the same way the blazing sun heats a cold rock, God's heart heats your heart as you hear him talk about his enemies and his love for them and his pursuit of them. So if your heart is cold and apathetic and you don't give a rip about anybody else and God showing them the mercy that you yourselves, that me myself have tasted, we need to, as it were, pull our hearts and lay them in front of the sun and let them warm up. As we circle back around again and look at him as he loves this world, as he loves people who are not yet his people. That's where we gain a vision and a heart for these things. The one good thing that Jonah does this time is he prays to God. And that's very different than what he did last time, right? Last time, God said something to him he didn't like and he ran. This time, God does something that he doesn't like and he prays. That's improvement. That's growth. And because he prays, he ends up with a conversation about God, not a conversation in his own head with himself. And the conversation that God wants to have with him is really more of a case study. And this is beautiful. Again, how God approaches Jonah, not through haranguing him, but by painting a a real life picture with Jonah. Verse six, now the Lord God appointed a plant and he made it grow up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to spare Jonah from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when the dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. Jonah, at this point, he was happy the day before. And now he's like, you're doing it again. See, when can I ever catch a break from you? When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die. And he says again, it's better for me to die than to live. God says again, Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And Jonah indignantly says, yes, I'll do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, here's the difference in you and me. Jonah pities plants. I pity people. Jonah is hot and bothered and bent out of shape because his shade is gone. And he has never, as of yet, given a single second's thought for 120,000 people's life and their vitality and their reconciliation to their maker. I know we live in a pluralistic time. You're like, well, they weren't Christians. Why would they even need this God? Because there is only one true and living God. And he is the one creator and maker of all men and all women around the world. And until you are reconciled to him, you are homeless and you are wandering and you are hopeless and you are helpless. And none of that keeps Jonah up at night at all. But as it were, God says it keeps him up at night. He says, Jonah, do you do well? You didn't make this plant. You didn't grow this plant. I made it. I grew it. I gave it to you. And I took it away from you. Do you do well to pity the loss of your little creature comforts? Your little shade tree? 
I made these Ninevites and I sustained them. Yes, they're wicked, evil people, but I've caused the sun to grow in their crops and I've caused the rain to fall into their rivers. And I have sent a prophet to call them to come home to me and to stop playing games and abusing other people. And they have responded to me because I gave them the grace to respond to me. Jonah pities the loss of his creature comforts. and God pities people. This is always what God has been like. Jesus crying on the hill that overlooks Jerusalem right before he gives his life for his enemies. And he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, <coughs> the, the city that has killed the prophets. How I long to gather you under my wings like a mother hen gathers her chicks. This is consistent all the way through. Second Peter, God says, I do not take pleasure in the death of the wicked, but desire that all would find life and repentance. This is what God says through the prophet Hosea when Israel, his people are running for them. And he says, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. He pities Nineveh. This city of 120,000 people that do not know what the Hebrew says, literally their left hoof from their right. I love God. He is always so, so refreshingly honest. He calls these people cattle. These people are so spiritually clueless. The cows are smarter than they are. The cows are more in tune with reality than the people are. But he says, I pity those cows. This livestock, these humans who have become subhuman because they have severed the umbilical cord with their maker and their God and their sustainer. I pity them. I think about them. I send help to them and I restore them. That's the difference in this God and us. It's the difference in God and me. And it's a glorious difference. And before you think that God is sentimental and going soft, he is not a 13 year old overly emotional boy who overshares and needs your love and your attention and your affection. He is sovereign and he is holy and he is eternal and he needs nobody and he needs nothing. He voluntarily loves. He voluntarily moves towards. He voluntarily calls to repentance. Not because he's lonely and needs your company, but because he is heaven bent on pursuing his people. I end with this story. This is from a man named David Linden. He's a very old guy. Retired pastor at my church out in New Mexico. His wife, Shirley, the first year we got there was her last year and a half alive. She was dying from Alzheimer's. For a long time, she lived in the house. He tried to keep her at home with him as long as he could before she couldn't uh, manage that anymore. He wrote a prayer update to the church. How is she? If I, tell you how my, if I tell you how my time went with her on Saturday and Sunday, you'll get the idea. I took along the little dog, Missy. The dog searched her out and knew her. Both days, Missy jumped up to Shirley, and it seemed Shirley didn't even recognize her dog. Later, we sat together on a couch, and she pet the dog while Missy cuddled up. No sentences make any sense anymore. All of them are garbled. Shirley can't communicate except to say if she's cold or something like that. Now she sits in a sullen and passive stillness. This of a woman who once was so active and capable that she could write her to-do list on a Saturday morning and be done with it by mid-morning. So on Thursday, I got her up 
finding it necessary to wash the bed sheets again and yet again. I gave her a bath and a shampoo, and off we went. She seemed not to grasp what was happening. I often tell her the Lord is coming and that he's going to fix everything. I'm afraid that makes no sense. But what cheers me is that the promises of God, all of them, are just as true for her as they are for Abraham. Like Job, she could say, if she knew how to say it, for I know that my Redeemer lives and and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see my God, whom I shall see for myself. And my eyes shall behold, and not another. Sleepwalking, dying of Alzheimer's, it's all really the same. We're half awake. We don't know what's going on. If you've spent this spring thinking that your relationship with God is up to your grasp of him, your apprehension of him, your performance for him, your dancing for him, you've got the metaphor all backwards. You in this story are surely not David. I am surely not David, the husband, the caretaker. I'm the one who's only 1% aware of who David even really is and what he's really doing. And yet David, night and day, his whole life revolves around loving and pursuing and caring for his wife and all of her mess. Friends, that's the gospel. Do you have it right?